0: Now this is recording.
1: RTI International, International. Center for Forensic Dian. Science
2: presents
3: Just Science.
4: Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In this special episode of the IPTI season, recorded live in Crystal City, Just Science covers the panel titled Statistics and Testimony from the Practitioner and Juror Point of View. Moderators for the panel were Dr. John Morgan, Just Science host from RTI International, and Zhao Allen Zhang, a mechanical engineer at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Prior to this recording, Panelists gave presentations during the symposium on various statistical topics, including Statistical Interpretation and Reporting of Fingerprint Evidence at the U.S. Army Criminal Investigation Laboratory, presented by Mr. Henry Swoford. LR Testimony Cross Examined, presented by Dr. Hari Iyer and Dr. Stephen Lund from the National Institute of Standards and Technology, and Mr. Chris Fabricant, Factors Which Influence Juror's Interpretation of the Value of Forensic Science Testimony, presented by Dr. Alicia Wilcox. Dr. Wilcox goes further into her research on a previous Just Science episode titled Just a Juror's Perception. If you would like to watch their presentations, you can find them on the FTCOE website at www.forensiccoe.org. This season of Just Science is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. The recording will jump directly to the discussion. Welcome to the conversation.
5: Thank you to our speakers and I think that last presentation is uh, very enlightening when we spend all this time talking about scientific models when at the end of the day yeah, they convince 12 juries not to go and think about how you're dressed or how, what you look like. But you wanna start off the questions?
1: Uh, good afternoon, thank you, all of you. Um, my question actually centers around uh, Henry Swafford's presentation and specifically slide 22. So if it's possible to bring that up, that might be useful so I quote it accurately. But I wanna talk about your report language and it, the, the way I can summarize it, if I'm gonna describe it quickly to somebody in an elevator is there's a big number on the top and then there's a disclaimer at the bottom that's even bigger. And not to be critical, but what concerns me is how that's gonna be evaluated by somebody in the absence of an expert, or someone who's able to actually represent the details and explain them in a greater sense. I am in firearms, so I typically write a report that sounds like a third grader written, you know, this bullet was fired from that gun. Real simple. But the goal is to have it interpretable when I'm not in the room, the jury's looking at this piece of paper, and they never even heard from me. So anyway, what I want to do is go to the last two questions, the two bullet items, because these are specifically thrown out as things that the stat does not provide. But I guess my question is, if that's not directly communicated, how often are those two types of things likely to be inferred by the reader? And again, I think that's a question for everybody, but I, I would like you to answer it first, if you don't mind.
6: Sure. So the first piece of that question, if I'm going to reset it to make sure I understood, the first part of that question is we've got a short, succinct statement in the body of the report and then a slightly longer statement near the end of the report. But the first statement has a very large number to it. And so the question is, is how will that be interpreted in the absence of an expert testimony? So part of what we want to do is a report, what is the strength of the evidence for that given comparison at hand? And then the other part of that is, we have policy criteria in place of what we define, classifies as a, a match or an association. And we've related that back to your um, specificity rate. So we're looking at different ways of looking at the performance of the characteristics in a way. So you have a number indicating the strength of the evidence, 96,000 in this particular example, I believe. And then the down below in the technical note, The investigator that has no statistical knowledge may say, well, is that good or bad? And they'll say, well, results greater than 10 indicate a positive association. So what we're trying to do there is stay true to articulating the strength of this evidence and then still give criteria or context, I should say, of the significance of how to interpret that in a way. And some people may say, well, really what you're doing is just falling back into a binary framework. And the answer is, yeah, in a way, we are doing this because we're looking at the biggest hurdle we have is helping transition the community and the court systems away from a hundred years of a binary framework of he or she did or did not make the print. And so we're moving towards, well, let's get away from that framework, which we really can't support in a way, and let's move to criteria for a match. So you look at your number, this is a result of this given comparison, 96,000, okay. It's a much more probable to observe this result among common sources versus different sources, and then criteria for a match is 10 or greater. So somebody used an example, I believe Steve, of um, cholesterol levels or so forth. You get your cholesterol level, and then you say, okay, the value is X, well, what does that mean? And it'll say, well, this is the normal range of cholesterol levels among individuals, and you say, Whoa, thank goodness there, I don't have to take this. So we're trying to cater to that lay model of what we're already predisposed to interpreting. In an ideal scenario, we wouldn't have the technical note. I don't think we're there yet, though. This is going to be a generation long uh, incremental steps towards transitioning the fingerprint community away from a binary categorical framework with no numbers into a strength of evidence type of framework with numbers. Hopefully that answers your question. And the second part of that I'll say When you're dealing with numbers, that's like playing with a loaded gun. So hopefully the gun doesn't misfire and people don't misinterpret the results to say it's 96,000 times more probable this specific individual is the source. And this is gonna sound so terrible to say, but I'm okay saying it. The fingerprint community has gone to court and said this individual is the source and no other individual is possibly the source. So there's not much room for us to overstate if somebody does accidentally. So I kind of have a a bit of a buffer zone there.
7: Uh, For Alicia, so what was the demographics of your study? Curious about how the factors of race and other factors would play in the way the jurors answered the questions. In theory, it shouldn't have an effect. But still, I'm curious uh, about your survey, whether there was any info about demographics related to especially race.
0: Yes, I did. I asked demographic questions. Um, I asked them their marital status, their race, their political beliefs, their educational level, how much CSI they watched. So I did ask all of those questions. I have a lot of variables that I haven't crunched numbers with yet, even though I've thesis is about 400 pages. The only one I looked at was their own educational level and when they took their last science class. And I did ask them, do you think you're?" educational level influenced your understanding of the scientific testimony? That was one question I asked them on the phone and they said, some people said my education level did help me and some people said their education level helped others during the deliberation process. But I don't have information in my head right now. There was no influence of their political standing, how they rated themselves as very liberal or very conservative. That didn't influence the other results, but I'm not sure about race or age.
8: Uh, Just two quick comments and then two questions for Henry. First of all, Chris, excellent presentation. It's just really nice to sort of get the practical perspective put in here. Alicia, I just wanted to mention that you've reinforced things that I've said in previous presentations, which is as forensic scientists, we're really striving to communicate our findings and our limitations. And I'm going to say this sort of with a grain of salt, I don't think statistics is the answer to that in a very simple way. I think we have to learn more about it and how to, how, to, how to communicate those types of findings, but I thought your presentation was excellent as well too.
0: Not what the scientific community is asking us to do. I, don't, I have not read to, that they said that people have to go to court now and use likelihood ratios. They do want us to establish foundational validity for the subjective comparative sciences, but I don't know if we have to go to court and do in-depth statistical training with people, I think it would just go belly up and may not even be reliable or confusing. If we're confusing and do not help to try our facts, will be we'll be sitting back in our lab, we'll be useless.
8: So I agree with you. As mm-hmm. a scientist, what I would like to have is I would love to have statistics and quantitative information for me to understand when I do a specific analysis like the strength of that. So if I'm comparing two fibers or if I'm comparing two items, if I'm doing GCMS on two different substances, if I have the statistics to back that up, trust me, I'll go to court and I'll convey that to the jury because I'll have that confidence Mm -hmm. in my analysis and what I can say and what my limitations are. Just real quick example, though, if we do look at DNA exonerations, you know, many of them involve ABO blood typing, which have, you know, we're talking about very strong population statistics behind them. And people would go into court and say, well, he's type A and that's the 20% of the population period. And they walk out of court and that's it. But there'd be no context to that. So we, we just need to be careful on numbers. It's not always the magical solution. Two quick questions for you, Henry. And I realize you're sort of in a separate population, if you will, in terms of who you communicate with and being in the military. Now, were there any efforts, I'll ask the two part questions and then I'll walk away. So were there any efforts to educate your submitters or your clients before you started using reports? And then question two is, and I know you said you haven't really received any feedback, but do you have any intent to, I don't know, do a survey or, sort of petition your people to see how they're embracing, I guess, your new reports?
6: The first part was, did we make proactive efforts to try to educate our customer base within the military justice system prior to launching? And the answer is yes, we did a couple of things. Routinely, I don't know exactly how frequently, maybe once a month or once every two months, we have a program where we have special agents come in from around the different military installations around the world and those investigators will come to our laboratory and we teach what we call a SALT class, special agent laboratory training. During those trainings, as we were leading up to the shifts, we began educating them on the NAS report and then on the, the PCAS report and, and so forth and the human factors report. And we began talking with them of we were going to be changing soon and we actually incorporated some of those, class, those participants in the classes in how can we incorporate it such that you'll understand, but knowing that it's going to change no matter what because of this, and then what can we do to help con- accurately convey that? That's with the investigators. We also have what we call a TCAP and a DCAP, trial counsel assistant programmers, prosecutors within the military justice system, and defense counsel is the DCAP part. So We actually have the opportunity to engage with prosecutors and defense attorneys in the, in the justice system. Part of the strategy behind a lot of this shift is, remember uh, in 2015 and we said, we're gonna stop saying identification and everybody threw as much as things as they could to us. The strategy there was actually a stepwise transition for not only our own practitioners at our laboratory, but also to engage and to help the, our customer base slowly begin transitioning into these different frameworks of viewing our evidence. Long answer, but short one, yes, we did proactively engage them, and in, in some ways we got their feedback and helped incorporate what that would look like. And then the other question that you asked is, do we intend on taking a survey of, and this is where I'll need your clarification, our own practitioners of how it's going versus our field of how it's going? Which one? Who's our audience? Okay. so. After we launch, we continue to have these SALT classes and TCAP classes and DCAP classes, and we continue to engage them during those classes. We haven't formalized a survey going all the way out. We just simply, okay, how is it working? Any questions? This is why we've changed. This is what we came from. Do you have any questions? And we'll have some questions, but oftentimes we haven't had any, a lot of feedback directed back to us. And then that information paper that you saw, I showed a snippet of it when I said we launched. That was distributed throughout the military justice system as a heads up, we're launching today. So you already kind of knew about this, so we engaged him in that way as well.
7: Actually, uh, interestingly, pulling off of Henry's comment just now about individualization, moving away from individualization, the online audience is having a fairly lively conversation right now about, (laughs) about that very topic, with the theory being that the further you w- move away from individualization decisions, the less likely you're going to have error. Uh, that if you just say, well, the bloody shoe print was consistent with Henry's shoe, as opposed to, yeah, it's Henry's shoe, that that allows you to, well, the, the theory is to, uh, tends to zero. I don't know if that's exactly, I don't know if I agree with that. So the question is really f- actually for Chris and Alicia. So, for Chris, to the courts, for Alicia, for juries, maybe judges, is the idea that if we move away from individualization frameworks and maybe to either statistical frameworks or consistent with kind of frameworks, that that will be more favorably judged by the courts and by juries, or will that merely confuse the issue? Well, you talked first about error, you
9: know, I mean, yeah. it would be less likely to be an error? And I don't think that's the right construct. I think it's, you know, you're not going to be presenting exaggerated conclusions, you know, presenting misleading testimony because the science doesn't support individualization. So to that extent, yes, I think that that's a good step forward And not doing that because we know as we sit here today and it was tweeted out by NIST that those aren't scientifically defensible conclusions.
7: Well, I guess the second part really is for Alicia. The federal rules and Daubert and things like that, I think you're right, ex- exactly right. But how will juries feel about that? Will juries be accepting of that? Juries like the basic simplicity of saying, yeah, you know, it's that guy's fingerprint, as opposed to it's consistent with or these statistical frameworks. Isn't that, won't juries perceive that as undermining their perception of the reliability of the evidences?
0: The jurors will do a very good job of dealing with us as we change our, how we're going to testify if we take the time to walk them along that path. A lot of the um, trace and pattern evidence that we're talking about here at the conference, it should be something we can demonstrate. There's been very few cases that I had something that was so complex that it wasn't something I could show a layperson. So if we are coming to court with a uncertainty level or a statistic or something like that, and I think at the end of the day, my own personal opinion, given this data, given the uncertainty level here, black box studies and error rates, that it is my opinion that given the data and here's my demonstrative aid, I'm afraid to say it, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> that this fingerprint was made by the same person that made this known.
9: Mm-hmm. I mean, the One thing that I would add, which I think is important, is that is that one, is, it is critical that jurors understand whatever conclusions are being proffered by an expert witness, but more critical is that the opinion is scientifically defensible. So first we have to have scientific validity, and then we have to learn how to communicate it in a way that jurors can understand.
0: I think they're both very, very important. I don't know if one's, certainly the scientific validity is very important, but I think we can do that back at the lab. We can do that amongst ourselves. Is that something we need to air out the complexities of how we got there in court? I'm not sure. Well, I'm
9: not suggesting for court. I just mean before you get into court that we have validated and demonstrated the reliability of a technique, then we have to learn how to communicate it. And so what I worry about in some of the like statistical frameworks is that we're kind of using it as a shortcut past validation and reliability research. Yeah,
0: OK.
3: Frederick? My question is, well, there's a question, but a comment is, and I don't know if the audience here or the the live audience online feel the same, and I was very amused by Chris' presentation and a little bit confused. Amused for several reasons. The first reason is that courts in in the US have consistently accepted any kind of conclusion we can provide them. I mean, there's no any legal requirement for anything, and if David Kaye was here, he would list whatever case where whichever conclusion was accepted and it seems that it's gigantic, random, almost mess. right? So that's the first amusing thing. The second amusing thing is that defense lawyers have been pushing, and that's rejoining rejo- one of the Henry's comments from this morning, the defense community has been pushing for the forensic community to report more open, transparent, and statistically supported conclusions. Now you're telling us that While we're trying to get there, now you, the defense community, is getting ready to rip us apart by trying (laughs) to do what you asked us to do 20 years ago, (laughs) so that's a bit confusing. The third thing that was a bit amusing is that there's nowhere in any other sciences There's a requirement for a statistician or a research scientist or some data scientist to test absolutely every single model possible to justify that they've used this one and that this one is the best one. Not in medical science, weather forecasting, environmental, anything. So it doesn't exist. The fourth very amusing (laughs) part about your talk is that you come from an organization that has built its entire research program and credibility on using likelihood ratios to support DNA evidence. So maybe I misunderstood your talk and where you wanted to go with that. (laughs) uh, Just my comment. I was amused. You did misunderstand
9: my talk. And I think what I just emphasized was that we have to have scientific validity and we have to have demonstrated reliability before we come into court. And that is what the defensive community has been pushing for. And they've been pushing back against claims of individualization, saying that that is not supported by the science. There's no statistical support for those types of conclusions. So you're comparing apples and oranges. And that courts will be emitting whatever kind of garbage is proffered by uh, lawyers is a shame. and I've written two law review articles about it, and Brandon Garrett and I researched every single case in the United States that have ever cited 702 since 2000 and analyzed every one of those opinions. And what we find is, is that courts are capable of rigorous application of Federal Rule 702. It's to the defense where those get rigorous application and those types of opinions are excluded as unreliable, appropriately excluded usually. So the idea as to what courts are willing to accept or not willing to accept, one has very little to do with what you were talking about, more to do with the process of the adversarial system and and how unfair it really is and unbalanced in terms of the admissibility of expert evidence and we have empirical evidence to demonstrate that our use of DNA evidence, no organization relies more on valid and reliable science than the Innocence Project. Absolutely correct. And that's usually because somebody's excluded from a DNA sample when they were convicted wrongfully. So the idea that a likelihood ratio, that it could be tweaked one way or another to come up with a different stat, is a separate and a different issue. The foundational validity of DNA has been established. That's not probabilistic genotyping. I'm talking about single source or two sample sources DNA. And the other point that you're, I think that you were making was this idea that, that multiple models, that you have to try every single model. No. One is that I was asked, how would you resist this type of presentation in court? That's how it will be resisted, amongst other ways. And another is that we don't have to do 10. We can do three. And if you get three different answers, that demonstrates to a juror that, well, I don't necessarily have to rely on Cedric's LR. I might like Henry's better, or I might like Joe's better. And since I don't understand any of it anyway, I'm going to go with the guy with the nice CV. <laughs> <laughs> well,
5: uh, so to that point, when you were talking about the rule 403, about whether the importance of the evidence is prejudicial or not. How would you defend against someone from just finding a model that has a drastically different likelihood ratio than the one the prosecution is trying to present? Wouldn't that just get that piece of evidence and likelihood ratio thrown out?
9: I don't know if it would get thrown out. I mean, what I, what I have been persuaded by statisticians, not being one, is that the most, I don't want to use the reliable, in, the, in lay terms, reliable way to, every time I try to say to Henry or Harry and Steve, so what you're saying is, I'm I'm always wrong. (laughs) To sum up, no, no. no. (laughs) So, but is to run multiple models, three, four, whatever the number is, and have a range of conclusions where they're not so, like, spread that we don't really have any idea which one is, you know, where we are anywhere in the field. If we have a reasonable spread, I don't know what that looks like, but you have multiple models, then if you come in, Somebody has done three models and can defend the choice of the model used and that I use these others and got these other numbers, then if somebody comes in and says, well, you didn't do five more, the lawyer who's making that argument is starting to look silly after a while and I don't think it'll be effective. The yes. one
6: comment I want to add to that piece is that the strategies that Chris presented of how he would challenge this is extremely important for us to start opening this dialogue because it demonstrates how information, no matter how credible or uncredible, rational or irrational it is, will be spun in the adversarial system. And it illustrates for the practitioner community When you're playing with numbers, you're playing with a loaded gun. You have to get away from your categorical framework that you can't substantiate, but you've got to understand where you're moving, and you have to understand the parts of the gun, understand the safety factors, understand where the trigger is, and what I mean by that is understand what your statistics do and don't mean. Understand how the statistics were generated. We will make a critical mistake if we blindly bulldoze into the statistical arena, start throwing numbers out left and right, and don't actually know what they mean. So the information that that Chris proffered of how he would as a playing the hat of the litigator on the defense side is critical for the practitioner community to start looking at. And if any practitioner looks at those questions and says, nope, we should not go down that road because of that's what the defense attorney is going to do, Google some stuff, please, and then let's come back to the table with the conversation. You look at that and you say, All right, I need to step up my game as an expert if I'm going to continue to stay abreast of emerging technologies and emerging approaches, I need to know how to respond to some of these types of questions to be able to articulate effectively not only to the defense, but the prosecutor, but also the lay people. So I saw that what you presented was extremely informative, and I'll be asking for a copy and we'll be strategizing on our side.
7: So the online debate continues. Uh, actually. Not to Henry, but to Swafford. From Candace Brown, have you testified using the new report language? And from Stephen Brock, slightly different take on it, and that is you're looking really at what he characterizes as level two features alone, looking for correspondence. Rather than considering any areas of possible disagreement, aren't you drastically oversimplifying the process by taking an analog process where an examiner considers ridges and all the information present and subsampling by only looking at level two features and as in FRSTAT, aren't we disregarding substantial information that may be available that could impact the decision process? So if you could address those two questions from sure. online, please. So the
6: first question is, have we testified to this? And my response there is, well, the truth is, no, not yet. My response is, for the last almost 11 months, we've been issuing in every single uh, criminal investigative report the FRSTAT results. We are starting now to start seeing the cases come to court. Every report we release, they have the opportunity to call us as a witness. So we are available, happy to testify, but the one thing I want to caution my colleagues on is when we're talking about what is good scientific practices, the admissibility in a court system is not the standard by which what is good scientific practice. And so I am 100% confident (laughs) or the strongest degree of reasonable scientific certainty (laughs) that (laughs) when the time comes and the court systems require our expertise to help translate this information, we will be effective in doing so because we have not moved too far away from our existing legacy practices. So soon to come for the courts, I know that's what everybody is waiting for, but I encourage you to look at the scientific foundations of it before whether judges who don't understand science will accept it. I assure you they will.
7: The other question, which was, doesn't your model ignore a lot of Mm details, some of which might back up, some of which might detract from your analysis there? Yeah,
6: our model is extremely simplistic. It summarizes a lot of high-dimensional data down to a single value. It ignores level three detail. It ignores level one detail. It doesn't even know the specific configuration. There's so much data that we are not accounting for, and yet we still have reasonable discrimination between same and different source prints. So all of that information that the FR stat is not accounting for, that just means that's unquantifiable extra value to the strength of this evidence, but at a minimum, here's what we're looking at, and it's pretty darn strong evidence.
10: Well, I'm from the Pennsylvania State Police. I'm a trace evidence examiner. I have a couple questions for Dr. Wilcox. In the course of interviewing the jurors, I noticed you said that there was a relatively low perception of credibility of trace evidence compared to say fingerprints. Do you have any ideas on how to increase the perception of reliability of trace evidence aside from just making the jurors more familiar with it? I mean, because everyone's heard about fingerprints, it's such an old technique, but I mean, in trace evidence, we're using highly reliable instrumental techniques, but we're not saying, Oh, this person did it or this specific object was the same source as what we found at the scene. And the other question I had, too, is you mentioned about formal education. In my laboratory system, there's no financial incentive to have a higher advanced degree. Do you think that is something that employers should invest in to increase the reliability, or do you think they can counteract it by, for example, training and certifications?
0: The first question about the trace evidence and how the jurors perceived that. I'm cautious in answering because of my um, the trace evidence lab in Maine, I worked there for 10 years. While I was there, and I think currently ongoing, due to backlogs and staff constraints, over time we spent less resources in the trace evidence section because the significance of the conclusions that can come out um, are maybe less than you might have in some of the other disciplines where you could have a stronger association. So the people who testified, and that's one of the things that I noticed, when people testified to a class association with tires, or shoes, or duct tape, or fibers, the jurors found that less reliable. And I think maybe less important to their decision making is is what they might have meant. I have read recently a big push that we can get more databases for trace evidence, and then we could refer back to that to make our conclusions more robust, and I think that will really help answer that question, and that's probably where we need to go. We would have stronger conclusions rather than similar or could have made, or, or I'm not exactly sure the exact trace terminology, something like that. Your second question, I'm a strong proponent uh, in education. When I came into my job, we had gone from sworn to civilian, from in a sense non-scientific criminal justice degrees to requiring I had a master's degree and anyone after me they hired, I believe, was at the same level. You needed one year's experience, which is almost impossible to get for anyone who's new, or a master's degree. They took that as one year's experience. I think the more science somebody has, the more critical thinking skills they have are very important. And if I was in a position as a crime lab director, I would certainly put weight on that. And I'm hoping the results from the research will help us when budgets are tight, that we can say, Hey, you know, being certifications are important to the jurors. We're spending a lot of money on accreditation and the jurors are not putting the same weight on that. I'm not saying accreditation is not a good way to go, but the jurors see something else. They see our individual skills as
11: very important. Hi, Nora Rudin. I'm a private consultant mostly in DNA. I also participated yesterday in the day-long workshop. I have three things to say. I hope I can remember all of them. The first is talking about all these probabilistic approaches, the one thing that has not been said, at least that I've heard all day, is that there is no right answer. So when you're comparing models, there is no right answer. All you can do is compare the models. It is important to do so. It's important to understand that the models are different. The variables modeled are different. The assumptions are different. People use them differently. But the next thing that I think it's very important to understand is that it's not the number that you get out, not the final LR. It's the inference from that LR. If you have an LR of 10,000 and 100,000, many lay people, in particular will make the same inference from that. So what, at least in DNA, we're trying to do is look at the spread that we're getting from different models, and yeah, we are slowly trying to do that, and make sure we're not getting, you know, minus log 10 for one and plus log 10 for another one. If they are all producing the same inference, that is what leads to some understanding that perhaps what we're doing is reliable. I'm not sure the court system is necessarily the place to do that. I think it needs to at least at first take place in a research environment. The court is not necessarily the best place to do science. And the last thing I'll say related to court is, I've been working with probabilistic approaches and testifying about them for years now. So, I'm not new to this. Jurors never understood any kind of numbers, not frequentist numbers, not probabilistic numbers, not anything. I don't ever try to educate the jury on the math behind what I'm doing. I simply try to communicate the weight of evidence in the simplest way possible. That's what I have to say.
5: Thank you. But yes, I agree with you. I think one of the research points we need to hit is model convergence, seeing all these different models. And are they all giving you pretty much in the same direction of answers? At that point, you don't have to quote a specific number or anything like that.
7: I'm trying to sum up kind of what I'm reading. So I'm going to put it in an interesting framework based on what Chris had talked about a little bit earlier. So I'm going to start by saying FRSTAT is a landmark for the pressure pattern trace evidence community. It's an extraordinary achievement. That said, so Chris, based on your presentation, I'm looking at FRSTAT. I don't know. Have you ever seen FRSTAT presented before? Yeah. Okay. So he's using only one model. He uh, is using a fairly limited population on which to base that model. He ignores a great deal of the information in latent prints he only kind of coincidentally through the examiner's choice of points of comparison takes into account things like distortion and curvature of a surface and things of that nature Aren't you just itching to cross-examine him? You know, I'm, I'm itching to cross-examine them all. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was the answer. I don't, you know why?
9: I don't want to do that because two things. Is that one, is that Henry's model is attempting to address what Cedric was trying to talk about and missing the point. And that is, we're trying to move away from scientifically indefensible conclusions. And that is what Henry has developed a transparent model in an effort to do that. He has the data that's not being int- included into this stat. And so the same type of cross examination you do to any latent print examiner would be available to anybody from Henry's lab and that's based on all of you've been cross examined before, some of you by better lawyers and some of you by not. And I alluded to this a little bit, but yes, I mean, anytime any database that's being used, and that includes DNA and that includes, you know, any database that's available, is that you're going to talk about, well, how appropriate it is for the case at hand and has it accounted for some of the variables you talked about. And if it hasn't, that's going to be a right basis for cross-examination. And one of the things that we haven't talked that much about Bayesian reasoning and that, which I think is a really important thing to stress in terms of Juror interpretation of evidence and the way that likelihood ratios are communicated by experts to juries. One is that lay jurors, the prior odds of guilt when they walk into court extremely high, right? Most people that are arrested, in charged, and put on trial for crimes are in fact guilty. You can quote me on that, right? I mean, we'd be living in a crazy world if most people were not guilty. So we have that going against us call it against us, or for us, you know, I mean, to begin with. And so if you have a Bayesian framework that's being used in a subjective technique, and you're not doing anything to block, you know, the pernicious influence of cognitive bias, that number, I think, is all the more unreliable and all the more vulnerable to attack. And so I think that's something else that I wanted to make sure before I leave today that that comes out here is because that's one of the things that I would be asking a lot about. And so I think Henry's approach makes him less vulnerable to a cross-examination than an approach that lacks that database, because Henry can go back to the same thing that you've all been doing for the last century, right? You know what I mean? And give a, a persuasive presentation and come back and say, what I'm trying to do is communicate the strength of my belief, you know, based on this data set in a transparent way with these variables that I haven't taken into account in a transparent way. And I think that if you take one takeaway, is that expert witnesses that are transparent with their data, that bench notes are available, that front load, say, here's what I didn't do, here's what I didn't consider, here's why I didn't consider it, here are the variables that I didn't do. All that aside, here's the conclusion that I came to. That takes a sting out of any cross-examination immediately, right, because you can't come in and make that examiner look like they're hiding data, or that they're not doing things in the right way, or that there's information that you didn't want to see. It's when you don't get discovery, when you're not being transparent, that's when you're vulnerable to cross-examination.
7: Yeah, the other thing I'd say, and I'd like to hear from Henry too about it, is that the way in which he's doing it is the way a forensic scientist would do it, in the sense that it's one model, but it's the same model every time. It's his a, a standard operating procedure, and so he's not thinking about, well, here are the three models in this case I'm going to try to apply. He's thinking, this is what we have decided is what we're going to do in each case, and we're not treating this case differently from this other case, that kind of standardization across practice is extraordinarily, I think, important to forensic scientists.
9: Right. It's a step forward, I think, too. is like, you know, the the variables that you brought up are things that could be added, that will be added, I imagine, and it becomes more robust and more defensible. Sorry.
6: What I'll add to this is, if I could keep my thoughts coherent, the idea that you can have empirical data. Stephen Harri, I almost called you Harvey, merged you now, So Stephen and Hari have hit on a very important topic, and that is you have empirical data, and you can fit an infinite number of theoretical probability distributions. That is absolutely true. In the development of FRSTAT, this is addressed, and we have said you can fit an infinite number. But we've applied these statistical tests to the model we've chosen here, and we've chosen it because that we can apply a number of infinite models that will actually bolster this number up a bit in the area where we physically did not observe any, any similarity scores. Let's say, for example, the distribution of scores you saw from different sources over here, but we get a score over here. What do we do? We've never physically observed anything, but we know theoretically it could exist. So we address that in the foundational validation of the document, and we will acknowledge, if faced with that line of questioning, Yeah, you can apply a number of different theoretical models around this data, and we have chosen some that are commonly chosen amongst the statistical community to give conservative lower number results so that we're not artificially inflating. Are there others out there that may have heavier tails and the lingo to give us even more conservative? I'm sure there are. So we can address that and we have applied different models, but what we do not do that they hit on that should be done is actually calculating what would be the range of variability in those results and then calculate an uncertainty interval around that. That's important to do. I'm gonna transfer a little bit in thought and say that my entire motivation with FRSTAT is to inflict positive change for the fresh and rich community, to strengthen the underlying scientific foundations and provide the community a tool to be able to move forward. It's gonna hurt right now because we went live and you didn't go live. And so now you're going to have to go to court, and you're going to have to defend this. And that is exactly why, if you're interested, we will give you for free the entire software, the entire everything, so that you have an interim capability to continue moving forward in your laboratory. If you choose not to, if you say, I'm like an individualization, I don't like this probability stat stuff, then good luck. So what I'm putting on, what I'm saying by that is that this is a cultural transition. The stats behind FRSAT are so basic you learn them in ninth grade. I'm being very honest. If you knew what was under the hood, it's so basic. This is a cultural transition that we need to be moving towards.
7: So just a program note, uh, we were going to do a workshop with Henry here, but because of the. Uh issues with the government shutdown, we weren't able to do it, but the FTCOE does intend to follow that up with some other mechanism to try to expose people to FR-STAT, and we're also very interested in hearing from any laboratories that are intending to start to use it, because we uh, would like to work with you in terms of looking at performance (coughs) measures and things of that nature to help the community understand the impact of the use of that tool in practice.
6: One more thing to add, and then we'll, we'll get to that, is if you were to ask me do I hope FRStat is in practice in two years? I'm going to say no. The reason being is that once we have a system, and once we began to use some system to quantify, guess what happens? You're going to look at that, just like the question I believe from Mr. Brock earlier that said, well, you're, dis- you're just throwing away so much information there. And, and the answer is, yeah, we are. But guess what's going to happen? We're going to start demanding the vendor to community to create something better that has the technology, the capability to not throw all that information away, and then guess what's going to happen? They're going to deliver and we're going to get exactly what we want. But as long as we demonstrate to the vendor community that we're perfectly fine just saying whatever we want to say, they're not going to spend the money to develop those capabilities. So there's a lot of cultural strategy behind going live with FRStat. I hope it promotes innovation for vendor communities to give us better tools.
2: This is a question for Team Harvey. Um,
7: (laughs) (laughs) Once and now forever known as Team
2: Harvey. Team Harvey. So first, just a little clarification point. So I've heard you guys give a lot of talks in the past. And so when you're talking about essentially this thing of no one model is correct, you're talking about uh, maybe the parametric or non-parametric models associated with different densities or CDFs. Is that correct? No. (laughs) Okay, so that kind of leads up to my other question. So when I think about the important types of models that we encounter in forensic evidence, I think about sort of the models that talk about which things are exchangeable. So what types of our evidence are exchangeable? So are these the type of sampling models that you're saying not one model is correct? Is it these types of models?
12: No, I'm not talking about any correct model at all.
2: You have said that not one model is the correct model. There is no such
12: thing as a correct model for of course everybody.
2: No. Yes.
12: You can use your model. If you're a Bayesian, you do the Bayesian thinking, and you translate your beliefs into a distribution and work with it using Bayes' rule as you get new data. That's what you do, right?
2: Yes. but that. So my question is to make a distinction between these two things. At first, we start out thinking about what types of things are exchangeable, and this is what I have learned from my PhD advisor, Dr. Saunders, to call sampling models. This is what he typically refers to as sampling models. Uh, so we can think of these as being the Bayesian models that talk about which type of things are exchangeable. So just the very essence of before you even talk about doing either parametric or non-parametric modeling of the densities, which type of objects that you are encountering in your evidence can be considered exchangeable with other types of
12: objects of your evidence.
2: That's one so, type of model.
12: So I'm not sure where you're going with it because we didn't say anything about a parametric or a non-parametric model uh, or necessarily a correct, we are not talking about the existence of a correct model, but if people are working with models, then those models are all their choices it's not that it is correct so okay. I'm not i saying so what visual. i'm
2: saying is i i agree with you guys in that sense that if you're thinking about it that way is not one model is correct in all these situations i think that you're talking more about these parametric or maybe even non-parametric models of of densities of various different densities and so if we break the modeling structure out into these two different stages, where first you figure out which types of objects that you've collected are exchangeable with each other, and then within that modeling structure of what types of things are exchangeable, then you go ahead and assign either a parametric or a non-parametric model to the evidence within that structure. Then I agree that those potentially parametric or non-parametric models for those densities, no one model is a correct fit. But I definitely believe that depending on which question you're trying to answer, there is one correct model for that question regarding exchangeability assumptions, these sampling models. And so anytime that I I hear your your talks, I get confused about which ones you're trying to talk about. Is it the actual sampling models, or is it the parametric or nonparametric models of the densities i was speaking
12: generally i was not confining myself to one type of model or another type of model to me a model is a model if you're talking about exchangeability and you're trying to figure out which things are exchangeable that becomes your belief right who is deciding what is exchangeable
2: yeah and so that's where i'm saying that if we define what our question is that we're trying to answer, mm-hmm. uh, then there is, I think, fundamentally, a correct way to think about, under each, the prosecution and the defense hypothesis for how things have arisen, I think there is a correct model to talk about which objects are exchangeable. So the there, is a cor- there is a correct way to define the exchangeability between
12: objects. Yeah, I'm not sure if I fully understand the question or the point you're trying to make. This is
2: something that we we can talk about, too. We can. I don't want to take up everybody's time here. I
12: still feel like, yes, there is a correct model for the individual who is practicing Bayesian thinking. They have a correct model. That's their correct model. But my question is, another expert, similar reasoning, analyzing the problem soundly, have the correct model and I don't know that you two share the same correct model
2: so so I would think that everybody who is trying to answer the same question should have an agreement about which things are exchangeable these objects that you've that you've been given for this case everyone should agree about the model of how these things are exchangeable how the how they've arisen from these actual real-life objects that are physical, tangible, touchable. So in that case, I think that there there is essentially one correct model for exchangeability within the type of question that you're trying to answer. I think it becomes on this second level where you're trying to talk about within that set of exchangeability, then how do you model densities, for instance, where potentially the disagreement could occur. And so, I think the first most important thing is to make sure that there is an agreement, a definition of what this exchangeability model is that everyone would agree on before we even bother talking about, you know, all these different possible density models that we could determine. I think the more important and relevant question is to first define for different types of forensic evidence what the, that exchangeability model would be, and sort of get across the idea that there should be one correct way to do
12: that. That would be nice. Yeah.
5: <laughs> well, in the interest of time, um, I'd like to thank our panelists again for their enlightening talks. And uh, Henry, within two years, hopefully, firearms would be where you guys are right now.
4: This episode concludes the Just Science 2018 empty season. Next season, titled Drugs, will begin April 23rd. Subscribe now so that you can get automatic updates when an episode releases. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.